Now our passage, our sermon passage this morning is James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And as you all turn to James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, it occurred to me that I can fill this time of turning uh, by mentioning something that the session talked about yesterday, and that is the absolute joy that we have in seeing so many families with young children. And these young children range from, of course, you know, newborn to in their teens. And we wanted, as a session, I think I'm speaking for the session here, I hope, that, uh, to, to mention the fact that your kids are a blessing from God. And when we hear your kids, we're reminded of the blessing from God. And it's okay if your kids do not sit rock solid still, and if they don't keep quiet as a church mouse. You know, we, we are so thankful that kids are here, and that they are, in fact, a blessing from the Lord. So I hope if you're a parent who, you know, gets nervous about that, that can be some comfort to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm glad we have kids. You know, it could be a much darker world. All right, let's turn to James chapter 4. And we'll look at verses 4 through 6. And this is, of course, James, the, the pillar, one of the pillars of the church, the, Old Test- the New Testament church, who is speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to us. That means that this is God's word breathed out to us. So James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. James says, Adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we see uh, some amount of uh, sin and conviction in our hearts because of this passage. We approach your word recognizing that yes, we are sinners, but Lord, we are so thankful that right after telling us of our sin, you remind us of your grace. Lord, please impress this grace upon us here today. Help us as we are gathered here to see you more perfectly, more fully. Help us to see the beauty and the glory of your grace on full display. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I've noticed something in the past three or four years, and that is that marriage changes a person. (laughs) Marriage changes a person. Now, I was originally going to say marriage realigns our priorities, but I think a a more simple and a more straightforward way of saying that is marriage changes a person. And I think about the way that I was before I was married. I was in seminary. It was my first year of seminary, and the selfishness that pervaded my life could be seen even in my diet. I gave no thought to the future. I ate that fast, quick rice, whatever that's called, where you pour the packet into the water, boil it up, accompanied usually by a Mountain Dew. Because why? Not because it was good, not because I was thinking of my future, no, because that's what tasted good in the moment. It was what fulfilled my desire in that moment. Selfishness dripped from my life. I could give you many more examples, but I'm not preaching from the book of Elijah. We're talking about James. James. 
So marriage changes that somehow, doesn't it? It, it? it changes you. I'd like to say that it changed me from being completely selfish to being completely selfless. But I would say the change was not as dramatic. It was a change from being completely selfless, selfish to being aware of that selfishness. Right? We see our selfishness now when we're balancing a wife and two kids. We see our selfishness when we are realizing that we are not the center of the universe. And so this selfishness, it goes hand in hand with the wrath that James just talked about and the pride that he'll talk about in a moment. This selfishness is self-idolatry. And as we are married, we recognize our self-idolatry and our pride, and hopefully we put that away. Well, guess what? This passage does not just apply. It doesn't just click with those of you who are married or have been married or will be married. It applies to every one of you that calls Jesus Christ their Savior. Each and every one of you are part of the bride of Christ. Each and every one of you who call God your Savior, who recognize your dependence on Jesus Christ and His blood, you are married to Christ. And that's awkward to say, but we're going to talk a lot about that today. So this marriage to Christ, it should help us to see our selfishness and turn from our selfishness. It should help us to turn from our pride and be more faithful to our bridegroom, our husband. And yet we see sin in our lives and we realize we're not always faithful, are we? So often, we are not faithful to our husband. But even in this unfaithfulness, God gives us grace. And that is our theme that we'll be exploring today, that God gives grace even to his unfaithful bride. God gives grace even to his unfaithful bride. And we're going to be looking at this in three different points. First of all, the unfaithful bride. Second of all, jealousy and envy. That's going to be covering uh, verse 5. It'll be probably the shortest uh, point I ever preach. And then we have our third point, the gracious bridegroom. So the unfaithful bride, jealousy and envy, and then finally the gracious bridegroom. Let's talk first about the unfaithful bride. James starts abruptly in this section. He, he starts with uh, vim and vigor, right? He turns the conversation from the topic of strife and greed and prayer to a much less comfortable topic. He talks about adultery. Now, no one likes deep discussions from the pulpit about adultery. You know, you, you don't want to hear your pastor waxing eloquent for 45 minutes about sexual sin because, boy, is that a sin that really makes us feel guilty and ashamed. So it might be some relief for you to know that James is not actually talking to his hearers about their flagrant sexual misconduct. But the topic he is broaching is equally sobering. Here in verse 4, James points the finger at his church, and at every church in following generations. And he thunders out this shocking accusation. He accuses the church of God of being spiritually adulterous. Spiritually unfaithful to her divine husband. So let's talk about this concept of spiritual unfaithfulness. Or if you will, we can back up a moment and talk about being the bride of Christ for a moment. This term that James uses... Uh, is adulteresses. In the original Greek, the address is feminine only. I think our, um, 
our English Bibles try to uh, favor a more equal opportunities approach by saying adulterers and adulteresses, just so that women don't read this and say, oh, you know, James is pointing at me. Guess what? James is pointing at men and women. But he uses a female term. He uses this feminine term, adulteresses. Why? Well, because we, men and women here sitting in God's presence, we are part of the church, which is the bride of Christ. We're the wife in this picture. Now, this is an Old Testament concept. The people of God are God's covenant people. They're bound to God by the same arrangement or a similar arrangement that binds a wife to her husband and a husband to her wife. This is a covenant. Spouses are joined together in the covenant of marriage, just as Israel was covenantally bound to God Almighty. And the prophets, they make this very clear. We see in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, this statement. Isaiah says, for, the, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. What Isaiah is saying is, for the church of God, God is your husband. And then you look at the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16, and you see a very visceral and uncomfortable picture of this marriage. I would encourage you to go home and look up Ezekiel chapter 16. It's a shocker, but it is good. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the chapter begins with God seeing the newborn Israel abandoned and orphaned, cast aside. And what does God do? Well, God rescues and loves Israel. He establishes Israel. And at, uh, at a certain time, once Israel is of a marriageable age, then he marries Israel and he takes Israel to be his wife. And what is the result? Well, you'd say, well, of course, Israel is faithful to her husband, right? You guys have read the Old Testament. You know that's not true. (laughs) Israel acts adulterously against her husband. She looks for lovers among the nations, and God responds in wrath. There's wrath poured out, punishment given to this unfaithful nation, the nation that he adopted and the nation that he made the covenant with. Well, of course, we see the same concept in the New Testament and in the Gospels as well, right? Jesus calls those who rebel against him an evil and an adulterous generation. And Paul speaks plainly of the church as the bride of Christ when he says in Ephesians chapter 5, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So there's a correlation between husband and wife And Christ in the church. Well, then we look at Revelation 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystals. Brothers and sisters, the church of Christ is the bride of Christ. 
Every member of the church of God is a member of the bride of Christ and represents the bride of Christ. So it's no wonder that James thunders at those who are striving with one another and hating one another. No wonder he calls them adulteresses. He is pointing out that by their behavior, they are showing themselves to be unfaithful spouses. Now in a few verses, we're going to see that James considers their primary sin here to be pride. In their pride, they have set their own wants and their own desires up as law. And they've thrown the law of God to the ground. In their pride, they had idolized themselves. They'd become self-seeking and envious. They'd abandoned their husband, Christ. So think for a moment. God gives us his law. He tells us, do not covet, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, all of these things. Every time we make a decision and say, you know what? I want what my neighbor has and what I do not have. That's coveting. We are saying, my law, the law that I want to create, the law that pleases me, is more important and more binding than what God has told me to live by. So who is God in that scenario? We are. Brothers and sisters, when we sin, it's far more than just ticking off the rule maker. When we sin, we are putting ourselves as the primary idol and worshiping ourselves. So brothers and sisters, this is us. This is not just James speaking to some long distant past group of exceptionally wretched sinners. No, James speaks to us. This condemnation by James hits us right between our eyes. We act in adulterous ways when we disobey our God, when we obey our own desires. And so I'd like you to consider your own relationships for a moment. All of you here who are married, all of you here who have been married, who perhaps will be married, think for a moment about that bond between husband and wife. When you're married to another person, you should devote your life and your love to them. What wife would be okay knowing that their husband was going to work every day and flirting with other women, being unfaithful with other women, sleeping around? What wife would say, okay, that's all right. On the other hand, what husband would say, yeah, my wife flirts with a lot of guys and I'm okay with that. It's unthinkable. It is unthinkable. Godly spouses cannot even imagine this. We would be furious. We would go ballistic. We would be hurt beyond degree. The congregation of the Lord, this is what we do with our spiritual husband every single day. Every time we turn our back on obedience to God because it's not comfortable. Every time we use a profane word to dishonor God. Every time we lie to our spouse or defraud our employers or willfully break the traffic laws of Arizona, if you will. Every time we break God's law, we are proudly obeying self, proudly disobeying our Savior, our Redeemer, and our husband. Please look at me, uh, look with me at the rest of verse 4 as well. It's all important. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now this, brothers and sisters, is seriously sobering. We commit adultery against our covenant God whenever we choose the world over God. Now understand that friendship with the world here, it doesn't mean appreciation for the beauty of this world. Before we had kids, Greta and I loved to go see sunsets. We would, we actually have been known to trespass, we didn't realize we were trespassing, but we were known to trespass to see a sunset, because you can't see one in the valley down here. And so we went to a high place and we looked at the beauty of God's creation, the, the colors painted on the sky, and it took our breath away. We loved that. That's okay. It's all right to marvel at the beautiful world that God has put us in. That is not friendship with the world as James talks about it. It's important to note that it's also okay to participate in the world's systems as well. We think of politics for one. It's all right to be involved in politics. Programs of this world. To be involved in this world, that's all right. That's not what James is talking about. But what he's talking about is instead intimate friendship with those who are set against God. That is spiritual adultery. This term friends, it's not the lightly held bond that we think of today. I can call somebody my friend even if I've only met them once and we've spent five minutes with each other. I'm a friendly person. So I have a lot of friends. But there's other kinds of friendship where there's a bond that is not easily broken. We think of David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. Their love for one another was deeper even than the love between a husband and a wife. It wasn't sexual in nature, but it was a bond that was true friendship. That is what James is talking about. This is a heart bond. He says to us, you cannot be bound to the world and bound to God. It's one or the other. So let me ask this to you. Take a mental inventory. Are you friends with God or are you friends with the world? I want you to think about this throughout this week. Are you friends with God or friends with the world? Would you rather avoid discomfort by being friends with the opponents of God? Or would you rather risk your neck or your ego by being bound to Christ? Are you willing to go along to get along, eager to keep your head down and mind your own business? Or are you willing to be a witness for Christ? Are you willing to glorify Him with all of your life? These are questions that should make us really think. They're heavy questions. But they're questions that are dictated by this text. James says you don't want to be a spiritually adulterous person. Well, brothers and sisters, time continues to tick on, so we must press on. The rest of this passage, it might seem simple on the surface, but trust me, it's caused many a translator and many an interpreter to scratch their heads. And this is where we get to our second point, the discussion of jealousy and envy. The verse that causes the most difficulty is verse 5. Let me read that for you. James says, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Now, I think most of you are probably using the New King James. Notice that the New King James capitalizes the word Spirit. 
And when we see a capital S, Spirit, we think the Holy Spirit. Now, there's some translations in front of you, I'm quite sure, that have a small s, Spirit. If you have a New King James, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is said to yearn jealously, probably for us, for fellowship with us. If you have an ESV, you'll see that God yearns jealously for the human spirit that he put in man. If you have a King James Version, you'll see that the human spirit we have uh, in ourselves is described as lusting and full of envy. There's obviously a debate over how to translate this passage. Is James saying that the Holy Spirit desires obedient devotion from us? Or is he saying that our sinful spirits envy and lust after the world? It's a fun head-scratcher. A lot of people have spilled ink over this. We're going to spend five minutes talking about it and move on. There's good reason for this difficulty, first of all. First, the New Testament, in the original Greek, it doesn't capitalize words in the way that we do. So every time the the scriptures, every time the Bible specifically and clearly talks about the Holy Spirit, that is a non-capitalized word, even when it's absolutely obvious that this is the Holy Spirit. It's a regular word, just like a human spirit. It's not capitalized in the same way. On top of this, the, the word that the New King James translates as jealously, it can also mean enviously. Jealously is good. Enviously is bad. A little bit of a difficulty there. And you might say, well, why don't we just look up this scripture that James is referencing and that'll settle it, right? Context is king. Well, guess what? He's not quoting a specific verse. He's summarizing and he's synthesizing. He's taking different Old Testament passages and combining them into a truthful saying. It's like when we do this with our our kids, we say, okay, daughter... The Bible says, or maybe son in in some of our cases, the Bible says, love your older sibling. Now, does the Bible ever say, love your older sibling? Well, yes and no. It doesn't use those exact words, but it says, love your brother who you can see. And so we understand there's truth that can be synthesized. I'm not lying to my my son when I say, say, you know, the Bible says love your sister. Of course, he doesn't understand what I'm saying, but give him a couple years. Let me just say this, by the way, as we try to understand this passage, let me just say this, that there's absolutely no chance that I can solve this puzzle, this riddle, when so many generations of biblical scholars have failed. I'm not going to stand here in my first year of ministry and say, I've got the answer that has confused everybody thus far. However, I can tell you the two main readings, and I can tell you which main reading I prefer. First, there are some who follow the discussion of idolatry and adultery in the previous verses, and they take this verse as a description of divine jealousy. God is jealous for us. He earnestly desires our worship and our faithfulness. God earnestly desires fellowship with our spirits, our small s spirits. Some even say that this passage means that God's Holy Spirit earnestly desires pure fellowship with us. To me, this seems to be the most likely option. We see this backed up in Scripture, Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. God is jealous. Let me read that passage for you. 
In Exodus 34, 14, we see this. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God is jealous. His name is Jealous. Jealousy is not a sin. Jealousy is rather a virtue. Envy is a sin. Now, if you're envious of somebody else's car, it means that you're wanting something that God has not given you. Your heart is greedily wanting that thing. Jealousy is something different. Jealousy is the protective desire that we hold for those things that God has given to us. So I am jealous for the purity of the church. I am jealous for the love of my wife. I would lay down my life for those two things. I'm jealous, protective of those things. And that's a good thing. Now, full disclosure, there's this other interpretation that's no less true to the Word of God. We find this perspective in the King James Version especially. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? That works too. In this reading, James is saying, look, the Bible says it, and it is therefore true. The human heart is full of envy. The fact that we find ourselves chasing after the world and acting in spiritually adulterous ways, this is no surprise because the Bible tells us it is so. In Jeremiah chapter 19, uh, 17, verse 9, God says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see? Brothers and sisters, the bottom line is that of these two approaches, one is true. One is, well, actually I should say, one is what James intended. James didn't sit down and and say, I'm going to write a riddle. It can mean two things. They can take it both ways. No, James clearly had something that he was trying to communicate to his audience, and his audience probably got it, because they knew James. We sit here and we say, well, both of these are true. God is jealous. He earnestly desires fellowship with us. But of course, our envious and selfish desires, those lead us into pride and to sin. So it's equally true that we are sinfully envious. Both are true. But brothers and sisters, thankfully, this is not the hinge of the passage. What I mean by this is this verse is not the make or break for the truth of what James is communicating. Let's look at the... the final verse, or the the last verse in this section, in our final point, and we'll see what is really the crux or the point of this whole section. This is our our final point, the gracious bride, excuse me, the gracious bridegroom. In verse 6, we have this sweet reminder. James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The key words, the four key words are, God gives more grace. Brothers and sisters, this is about the most comforting thing that we sinners can hear. God's grace towards his bride triumphs over the justice they so richly deserve. As you remember, I talked briefly in the first point about the betrayal and the sorrow and the anger that we might feel if our spouses were unfaithful to us. With this hypothetical uh, situation in mind, we can appreciate for a moment the response that we deserve from God. 
Like a husband whose wife has been unfaithful. Or like a wife whose husband has been unfaithful. God has every right to cast us aside. To say, I'm done with this spiritual adulterer. I have enough. I've had enough of their pride. And their betrayal and their infidelity. But even more, our God. The one who created us and sustains us day by day. He has every right in the world to destroy us outright. He made us and we are his to do with as he likes. So those whom Christ died for, for those whom Christ died for, this betrayal is even greater. We're sinners who casually decide not to listen to God who sent his son to die on the cross for us. We are sinners who value the blood of Jesus Christ so little that we ignore the fact that he died to free us from slavery to sin. And we walk back into that slavery without a care in the world. Born again Christians who decide to indulge in sin and chase after friendship with the world, they're like dogs returning to their vomit. It's an uncomfortable picture, but that is what the Proverbs tell us. So what is the response of God? Is it disgust? Is it exasperated fury? Is it hatred and bitterness? Well, no, it is, wonder of wonders, grace. Grace, marvelous grace. God pours out on sinners like you and like me abundant grace that purifies and reconciles us to him. But you might say, what about the consequences for my sin? I know I deserved justice. I know I deserve to be wiped out. What about that justice? Why doesn't God destroy me? Why does he give me grace? Is it perhaps true that God is not just? And we say, absolutely not. God poured out all of that justice on his son, Jesus Christ. God's wrath and his justice were satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as well, since he was fully God, he was able to take that death sentence, that death penalty that all of his people deserved. So he bore my death penalty. He bore your death penalty if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ. He bore the death penalty of all his elect. And he doesn't stop there. He gave great grace. But then he gives more grace. He saves us. He sanctifies us. And as a husband who cares for the heart of his wife and leads her by example and service to Christ, so also God leads his church graciously. He calls us to grow. He provides the opportunity for growth. And then he holds our hands as we grow. He pours out grace into our hearts by his Holy Spirit that matures us and conforms us to his image. He enables us to put sin to death and to live in righteousness. Well, there's one final piece of this verse that puts all of this into perspective. In the last two sentences, James quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. The quote is this, Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is a popular passage to quote in the apostolic time. They love putting this into their books. You think of uh, Peter. 1 Peter, I believe it's 5. Yeah, I have it here, actually. 1 Peter, yep, 5, verse 5. Peter quotes this. 
Peter quotes the exact same Old Testament to prove his point about fellowship in the church. And the message is clear. God resists those who proudly idolize themselves or the world. He resists those who commit adultery with the world proudly. But he gives grace to the humble, to the contrite, to those who hear and heed the warning. So brothers and sisters, let me come to you today with this call. If your pride has run away with you, and if you think that you can dabble your toe in the cesspool of this world without any harm, then I call you to hear God's word and repent. If you have said to yourself, I can be a Christian and live as I please. I can live how I want and do how I do what I want. I can enjoy what I want as long as I go to church and look like a believer. If this is what you're saying, brothers and sisters, it doesn't line up with what God calls you to. It's time to repent. If you've said this to yourself, then listen now to the word of God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. God resists the proud. And if you set yourself with the world against God, then you have established God as your enemy. God has a habit of winning fights. But perhaps you're of a different sort. Perhaps you have a heart that yearns to be friends with God. You know what's right. You know that God calls you to live for Him. But maybe you find yourself constantly enticed by the world. Maybe you know the danger of the world, but you still find yourself craving the pleasant sins that the world offers. Maybe even in your life you've got a pet sin, something that no one else knows about, but that you cherish because it's just so comfortable. If this is you, then find hope in this last line. But God gives grace to the humble. So my call to you this morning, as a minister of God's word, is to come to the Creator in humility. Come to the cross in repentance. Come confessing your sins and pleading for mercy and love. Those who come to Christ do not find a cold-hearted non-listener. Those who come to Christ in humility, they find one who is eager and willing to take them in, to bind up their wounds, to forgive and care for them. Those who come to Christ are never cast away. Rather, he gives the humble grace. So humble yourself, and he will give you grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you see our hearts. You see that pride is so easy and so attractive. Lord, we really desire to feed our own ego. We desire to obey our own law, even though we know that this is a dangerous game. Lord, we do pray that you would give us grace. We pray that you would work salvation in the hearts of those here who do not know you. You would work sanctification in the hearts of those who do know you. And that, Lord, you would give us grace day by day. Please forgive us our sins. Lord, see us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Wash us in the blood that was shed for us. And we pray this In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.